You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It is a good morning. Uh, Man, we're so glad you're here. My name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors. They normally uh, don't let me read the scripture, uh, but today I get to, um, and mostly because uh, I want to call us to um, a special thing to pray about. And uh, and so let me explain that, then I'll read, and then we will... um, uh, then I'll pray, and then I'll preach. And if I pray a long time, and so the service goes long, it's not my fault. Um, and so, but um, so David and Monica Taylor, um, they are our friends. Um, they are in Fethiye, Turkey. Uh, they're church planters who have been there for like over 12 years. And uh, man, our lives uh, have overlapped with them a lot. Um, uh, David's parents um, and sister are part of our church, and um, yeah, we like them. You can you can yeah. yell for them, okay? Um, but I actually met met David first uh, when we had just started meeting um, on Sunday night for a corporate gathering. Uh, David showed up, and uh, I noticed two things about him. Uh, one, he had a really cool trimmed up beard. Um, I noticed that, and he had two kids with him. So I thought, man, he might have a job. This is great. And uh, so I ran him down after service uh, just to talk to him and introduced himself. And he said that he was a church planter in Turkey. And I was immediately um, sad because I was like, we already have church planters. Uh, they don't make much money. And, uh, but that started a, a friendship. Uh, man, we just started talking um, just um, every once in a while. Um, I remember one uh, call real particular, just something was really hard going on. And I remember pacing um, in a neighborhood, just praying for him. Um, and then you fast forward about three years ago, um, you guys, um, our church, uh, raised about $100,000 um, to help them buy their church building to help them uh, gain citizenship um, in Turkey. And so a little bit of how that happened um, was uh, uh, we were coming in, I think it was around two, coming into 2002 or 22, I almost said 2002, that was a long time ago, y'all. I was alive for it, um, but in 22, and uh, God had really just, in reading the scriptures, just God put on my heart, man, you need to set aside, raise $100,000, set it aside uh, if I open the door for you to buy a church. And I, it was just kind of a thing where that just sounds like wisdom, you know? Um, and so I shared it with just a couple leaders, and that's how they responded. Yeah, it's about time we do something grown up. And I was like, okay, thank you. Um, but uh, that was on my heart. I hadn't shared that broadly. Um, it was March. Um, I was actually in Colorado, and I got a call from David, and uh, he just shared, uh, hey, uh, man, Christian missionaries and pastors are getting kicked out of the country left and right. And uh, we're trying to figure out how do we um, establish ourselves to stay here. And uh, then he shared with, this is true with most, most countries, it's kind of a pay-to-play thing. If you buy property or enough you know, investment into a country, uh, a lot of times it'll move you to kind of the front line, front of the line of citizenship. And so that amount was $250,000. And uh, he was asking if we would start a GoFundMe. Um, and uh, man, I just start laughing and crying um, kind of all at the same time because I was like, hey, man, two months ago, I felt like God put this on my heart uh, to raise $100,000 if he opened the door to buy a church. I just thought the church would be for us. Um, and so, man, we just figured out how to cast that vision. We brought it to you guys, and uh, you guys raised about $100,000 in about three months. Uh, for a church you may never step into, a place you may never worship at, um, a people that until the other side of this life you may never know. Um, we then, with other friends, kind of went to other churches, and Dave was working really, really hard and raised over $300,000. They purchased the church, put them in the front line of citizenship, and then everything just kind of got hung up. Nothing really was moving forward, and they had lawyers kind of working into it, and looking into it. Um, and so yesterday, um, I get a message, I get, missed a call from David and got a message from him. And uh, they found out why it was hung up. Um, David 
has been declared. I want to make sure I get this right. Um, he's been declared a threat to national security. And uh, what that does is it locks citizenship down and it might deport them out of the country. And so I just asked, hey, what do we do? Best case scenario, worst case. He says, worst case scenario is the local government will, the police will come and issue us 10 days to leave the country or be arrested. Um, and if we leave the country under that, I don't know if we'll ever be able to come back. We'll be banned for life. And he says, best case scenario, um, our lawyers get it into the courts where you know, maybe a hundred or more of these cases have uh, come to the courts. Only one has won, um, and, uh, but maybe we fight that and we get to stay. And so I asked, hey, what can we do? And he said, just pray. And so we sent this to the uh, world prayer meeting, and they prayed, and I want to lead us in a prayer. Um, and some of that, I just want to model you to pray daily for them. Um, as after I heard this, um, I went uh, just is, it's Saturday morning, and I went to work out. I mean, obviously, I went to work out, y'all. Um, <laughs> but I went to work out, and the first two songs that, that came on were emphasizing uh, Romans 12, 11, and uh, Zechariah 4, 6. That uh, the people of God resisted, and they found strength in the word of their testimony and they had strength because the blood of the lamb covered them. Or uh, Zechariah 4, 6, that it's not by might nor by power, uh, but it's by the spirit of the Lord. And I just spent time praying for that. I'm going to spend time praying that again. So I want you to pray with me. And um, uh, I'm going to pray. I want you to grab someone next to you if you don't know them. I don't know. That might be weird. Um, but I want us to pray. I want you to pray actively with me. Um, that means you can pray out loud with me. Um, it means you don't have to, but I, I want us to pray. And we are praying uh, to the God of the universe who has foreseen all things, who has said that hell can't uh, stand against his church, who said that his throne room will be filled with every language, every tongue, every nation. And that certainly includes people in Turkey. And it certainly includes people who don't know Jesus yet in Turkey. And so that's what we're going to pray about. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, we love you. And uh, man, we pray for our friends. Um, we pray for our friends who are in another country doing the same thing. Um, I'm blown away. I've asked questions of what does it look like to minister in Turkey? And he says, man, we people know who we are and what we do. And they ask questions and we try to get them to read the Bible and we share the gospel with them and Jesus changes lives. And I'm like, that's what we do. And so, Lord, we pray that um, the gospel would be clear. Lord, first we say it's an honor. It's an honor that David and Monica be declared an enemy of the state because of a gospel witness. It's an honor, Jesus. But now, Lord, we pray for provision. We pray that you would make edicts from your throne room and whatever you bind in heaven is, is bound on earth and whatever you loose in heaven is loosed on earth, that you are in all control. And Lord, we pray that you would work through government administrators, whether that's through conscious choice or something lost in between the details, and you would sustain them there. Lord, um, as David described to me as he told his church, and they wept, and they cried, and they rejoiced, Lord, let us be a part of that. Lord, move our hearts in how to pray that all we have is all that we need, and all we really have is the promise and works of you, and it is more than enough. And so, Lord, we come and as children who are welcomed into the throne room because a child gets to talk to his dad because of Jesus who has clothed us in his righteousness and because he sits there, Jesus, you sit there and you intercede for us. Lord, we ask that you help. And we ask with unbelievable confidence that whatever happens, you are in charge and you will bear fruit and your name will be made known. And so, Lord, we appeal those things to you. First, we appeal to your glory. Lord, your glory can't be hidden. It will be moved out. It can't be stopped. As darkness can't stop light, your glory can't be stopped. And so, Lord, we ask that you would establish your glory right there in Fethier. You would establish your glory and it would be strong. 
it would be pronounced. It would cause people to wonder and to draw in. Lord, we pray according to your character. You are merciful and mighty. Nations can rage, the sea can boil, and it can thunder, but it can't stop you because you command all things. And so, Lord, you're also merciful. Lord, when we look as we get to the end of Matthew, you know, oftentimes we look at it and we're like, uh, the Jewish leadership uh, killed Jesus. And that's true, but that was all the leadership there, really the buttoned-up moral people who didn't really have time for you or what you wanted, they're the ones who shout to crucify, the ones who think they're okay. And, Lord, we're prone to think that we're okay. And, Lord, in this really incredible prophetic moment um, when the trial was going on and hands were washed, I have nothing to do with this, the people cried out, may his blood be on us and our children. And that is exactly what saved us, your blood being on us and our children. And so, Lord, even when people conspire and Satan conspires and people move, your blood can save. And so, Lord, you're merciful. Be merciful. Lord, I pray for David and Monica. I pray that they'd be full of confidence and joy and they wouldn't doubt. I pray that it would be just like you promised in Isaiah. That it'd be like the Spirit is standing behind them, whispering which way to go, and that you would establish a joy that can't be defeated in their heart. Lord, we ask for help. And so, Lord, it's in your name. It's in your powerful name. The name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The victorious name of Jesus Christ, who will come back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, okay, okay. We don't have time to read, so just jump into Matthew 22. Um, I promise we're going to read it as we go. Uh, and so Matthew 22, we are on the series of three stories that Jesus is telling to the same audience. And it's coming out of the idea of who gives you the right? Uh, the, the, the leaders are coming around and they're saying, hey, Jesus, do you realize what everyone is saying in Matthew 21 as you enter Jerusalem? That they're saying, you know, what Psalms 118 said that's about the Messiah, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you realize what they're saying about you? And he says, yeah. You know, other accounts say that, hey, if they don't cry out, man, the rocks are going to cry out. And so he says, yeah, that is about me. And then he steps into the church and he, you know, kind of goes ninja action on everyone, starts kicking over some tables. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer, a gathering place for the nations, meaning we've set up barriers. There's a lot of things going on, but we're not producing fruit. And then, you know, they kind of say, hey, what gives you the right? Who gives you the authority? But all accounts say he started healing people, which kind of you know, shuts people up. Like, okay, okay. And so the question comes down to, Jesus, do you have the authority to receive the praise that you're receiving? And do you have the authority to stand in the synagogue, to stand in the temple, and to direct things? Who gives you the right? And so this building, so he gives a story about two sons. You know, there was a buttoned-up son who uh, said all the right things but wouldn't obey. And then there was this rude, insolent son who, uh, you know, told his dad, no, I'm not going to obey you, but then changed his mind. And Jesus had already said really clearly uh, to kind of the, the, you know, the religious right on this thing, you know, to the, the religious leaders. He said really clearly to them, hey, listen, the prostitutes and tax collectors, take your place. They go in first because they changed their mind. And so it tells us something about salvation. If we want to get in the kingdom of God, we have to change our mind. Like repentance starts with seeing something, being drawn to something, something standing up in front of us that is more beautiful, even though there's things pulling us another way, and we turn and we change our mind. And so the, the, the crowds had already changed their mind. They welcomed him into Jerusalem. They, they praised him. And they may not have had the full picture, but the, the rude son changed his mind. And then the other story was the story about the tenants, and so the tenants wanted to be owners. They wanted the vineyard. And, you know, we sent, you know, a servant after servant to remind them that they weren't owners, that they owed the owner something, and eventually sent his son. And the tenants 
killed and mistreated the servants. And then they saw the son. They said, this is the way for us to be owners. If we kill the son, the inheritance will be ours. Now, listen, that is true on a couple different levels. The death of Jesus, Jesus, the only son of God, the true son of God, has all the inheritance of the father. And salvation is this, that he laid it down to come to earth and then he laid it down in death. And so in death, the inheritance of the father was separated. And now salvation is this, you are called into salvation and you are made a joint heir with Jesus Christ. It is crazy sounding. And so all of these layers are coming in. Jesus now tells another story about a wedding. And they all have similar like, structure and similar kind of meaning, but this story is about a wedding, and man, I love weddings. Um, I, 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 I love weddings. My position on weddings has changed, but I still love weddings. Like, like Kinsey and I, we can turn any dance floor secular at any wedding. And I mean, I try to hold my elbows at 90 degrees and just kind of go left to right with the beat. But sometimes the lawn has to be mowed. You know, sometimes it just has to be mowed. It's summertime. Sometimes uh, the groceries have to be shopped. I mean, they don't shop themselves, even if you pay someone else to shop them for you and then you just pick them up. Lazy. I mean, they have to be shopped. You know, I mean, sometimes it just has to be done. But like, I don't remember when. I don't remember whose wedding it was, but I remember the moment that my position on weddings changed. You see, I used to always identify with the groom. You know, the groom were up there, you know, dressed nice, looking really good. You know, I give options. I can wear a black suit or a blue suit. I mean, that's what I got. And so we're standing there and everyone's looking at us. His guys are there. And then suddenly the bridesmaids start coming down and all that stuff. The doors close. The music changes. I have a line. I say, please stand. People stand up. They look back. And his bride... His soon-to-be wife is right there. And I used to, you know, while everyone's looking that way, I'd kind of nudge him like, you dog, you know, uh, something like that. Or maybe good game him. Um, and so, like, I used to just identify with him. But at some point it changed. At some point I looked at the dad. And I looked at the dad walking his daughter down, like, holding tears back the best he can, like kind of looking at the groom with a little bit like, I, I kind of hate you, you know. <laughs> and not able to look at his daughter or his wife because he knows if he does, he's going to lose it. And then all of a sudden, I start seeing my daughters flash in that place. And then, you know, instead of the good game for the groom, I'm like, how could you? You know, I start hearing like butterfly kisses play in my head and I hate that song, but it's my job. I will cry at that song and I start to hear. And so something, my position changed, but man, I still love weddings. You know, and so Jesus, he tells a story about a wedding and it basically says your position about this wedding has to change. You have to show up. The invitation goes out, but the doors will close. And you have to respond to the calling. And so in this, as it's unpacked, I just want to make some observations. And so some observations, like, like it's saying that we have to drop our things and show up for his wedding. And so the question is, will you come when you are called? Or will you dismiss the call uninterestedly? Maybe kindly, Maybe civilly, but dismiss it with, I've got my things and I need to deal with my life. Or will you lay down the call? Will you lay down your things and pick up the call and respond? And you may dismiss uninterestedly or you may resist violently. But Jesus says your position on this wedding is everything. It's everything. And so Jesus is making a clear, I mean, it's moved from like, hey, we've got one son and another son and we've got these bad tenants and no one really likes them, they're jerks. He moves from that to say, it is an invitation and you need to decide. And so he looks at him pointedly and we see these kind of similar points coming together where there's like a group that's kind of put together and they're not necessarily living up to expectations. So they lose their place and are replaced by another group who does not look together. 
And so we saw that in the polite and the rude son in verses 28 through 32. We see it again in a little bit of a different way in verses 33 through 42 of the previous chapter with the tenants who want to be owners who refuse to deliver when the owner calls. And now look at verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus is still speaking to the same audience that he introduced us with, where it says that he's speaking to the chief priest and the elders of the people. But now look at verse 45 of chapter 21. We have a little bit different description. It says, when the chief priest and the Pharisees, now, now most of the elders of the people, most of the chief priests, they would have been composed of two groups, the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees. And there's a lot to believe that most of them were Pharisees at this point, but it doesn't matter. So we kind of zone in just a little bit more. And to zone in a little bit more on the Pharisees in verse 45, he's saying these are like the really moral people. These are the family first people. These are good people. Like we read the Bible. And if you, you know, know the Bible enough, you see Pharisees, you're like, oh, those Pharisees. These were good people. These were people who wanted to see families stay together. These were people who wanted to take the teachings that were happening in church out to the street. Now, they loved to ratchet up the teachings to make it hard so nobody could ever follow they would sometimes miss through, you know, things that this was opening up to the Gentiles and they would miss things certainly, but these were moral people. And so we identify the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then look what it says. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And so what happens is they decide, man, we got to get rid of Jesus, seeking to arrest him, but being afraid because the crowds were gathered around him. And so we have two groups. We have the, you know, kind of insiders, the educated, the, the, the moral who were coming around, and they did not like Jesus' authority. They didn't like what he was doing. And so they were coming around, and they critiqued Jesus. And then you had this crowd group. A lot of these would have been from Galilee and from outer places. They were from nowhere places, probably uneducated, but they were gathering around Jesus, seeing what he was doing, hearing what he was teaching. Some of them had walked away from Jesus because the crowd had people who supported him and walked away from him. Just like the Pharisees had people who supported him and walked away from him. If you know the biblical narrative, you know that Nicodemus is kind of on the edge trying to figure this out. And it comes down to the call. It comes down to the call. Whether you're a part of one group or the other group, if you're a part of the crowd that's from nowhere places, that kind of like many of you, when people ask you where you're from, you don't think there's any possible way they know the name of your town. So you name a town that's like hours away. You don't think there's any way that they know about Leota. But people like me have been lost in western Kansas and need a gas and know all about Leota. It's not Leoti, it's Leota, even though it's spelled Leoti, but that makes perfect sense to me. People who say, man, you don't know where I'm from, but people who have answered the call about Jesus. And so the crowds would have consisted from a perspective from uncouth converts, tax collectors, and even prostitutes, but just regular people. Two groups. This parable wants you to see two groups. It, it, it's still true. Like, there's a way to oppose Jesus through rebellious outward sin. Like, I'm going to be my God. I'm going to do what I want. There's not going to be more constraints around me. But there's also a way to oppose God by being buttoned up and moral, where, like, I need to be in charge of my things, and God, you owe me. Both conservative and liberal people can oppose Jesus. And yes, that's my plug. It's an election year. We are getting ready for this. Both conservative and liberal people can oppose Jesus. And what does it come down to? It comes down to there has to be a moment where you change your mind. And so this is the story in a whole. Jesus tells a story about a wedding, and it's pretty clear on a lot of levels. God has provided a huge feast to celebrate his son's wedding. The invitation has gone out far and wide, and if you reject it, you miss it. 
If you show up and you try to show up on your own morality, you get kicked out. But anybody can accept this invitation and have a seat in the wedding. And so there's that level. There's another level I want you to see. We're not going to do a whole lot with this level. But within where we are in Matthew, we are three short days away from the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And what follows the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the owner's son has come and we have murdered him to try to gain the inheritance, try to be owners ourselves and threw him out of the city just like the tenant. But what happens after that story is a wedding. And what happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus is the sending of the Holy Spirit. And then the gospel is going out and it's being proclaimed. It's being proclaimed now to you. The invitation is going out about a wedding. And we read about that wedding in Revelations 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the death of the owner's son. The wedding is coming. The invitation is before us. And so we're going to look at this. Three words or three set headings, if you will. And so first is calling the merciful king who calls us to his wedding. And they have to be called. Then we're going to look at this, clothed. Like the merciful king clothes us for the wedding. And there's some discrepancy about that. And I'll you know, explain it to you and then tell you what I think. And then we're going to look at close. The wedding, the door. The door to the wedding, not the wedding to the door. The door to the wedding will close. So you have to answer the call. So number one, calling. Our merciful God calls us to a wedding. And so what we see is the invitation is going out. Like there are those who have accepted the invitation but rejected the call. And so let me try to unpack that. Look at verse 1. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. That means stories. And so it's another story. And it says, and again. So he's kind of making the same point just in another way. But it's a little bit different because there's this invitation that you have to respond to. So again, he gives them a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. And so the servants went to call those who had already been invited to the wedding. And notice that the call is not the same thing as the original invitation. And so this is kind of like what's happening with, with us these days where, you know, there's an invitation, but that invitation followed to save the date. And now there's another thing like she said yes thing. And so like we just keep adding. Hallmark is doing an incredible job of adding postcards that we send out. We keep adding to it. And so what would happen for a wedding, especially this, is like, hey, will you come to my wedding? It's going to be around this time, and we will get everything ready. And when everything is ready, we will send the call out, and then you need to stop what you're doing and come to the wedding. And so this first crowd, they've accepted the invitation. Yes, we will come. But when the call comes, they say no. And so let, let me help you with this in like free city terms. So in free city terms, this is kind of like uh, the reservation, like the save the date is us saying, hey, church starts around 1030. <laughs> like you need to be ready. Church starts around 1030 and you accept the date. You say, okay, I will be there. Um, I will park somewhere in the neighborhood reflecting the nature of Jesus, not in front of people, not walking around their yard. Be kind. We don't have good parking. So you've accepted the invitation. And then there's a call that goes out. You know, the worship team starts playing a song for the 10 people that are inside the service. And, and that's the call. And it says, everything is prepared. Everything's ready. Come. We are ready. And then what happens is your response. Let's read about your response in verse 5. It says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And so that might sound like I'm getting my coffee. I'm talking to my friends. I had to walk down that long hallway and met people, and they could be my people, so I need to find out. And so, like, there's a call that comes after an invitation, but you have to respond to the call. And so the call of God, I want you to hear this. 
the call of the king. It will always put you at a place where you have to decide between something that is my and something that is his. It will always put you at a place where you have to lay something down. And sometimes that laying down hurts. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's something that brings you pain, but it's addictive to your soul. And you're afraid of what your life will be like without it. But the call always has this juxtaposed where it's like, I have to lay something that's mine down. And so the, the first, in verse 5, you kind of see this, you know, casual no. Ah, I'm just not going to be able to make it. You know, I've got my farm, my business, my family, my life, my wants, my desires, my ambitions, my future. I'm just not going to be able to make it. But sometimes that call is violently opposed. So look at verse 6. Why the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Like this is making a point that we've seen earlier that the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted when they came with the call of God to place against people's lives. And so it's always been the same. There's something in us that pulls away from the call, hanging on to mine. And sometimes it's just disinterested. I'm just not ready. Maybe I'll come later. Sometimes it hits something violent inside of us. And so this call goes out. But what I want you to see is that it's a call to a meal. Like it's a call to a meal. Like the meal will go bad. Like you can't wait forever. It's homemade bread. If you've ever made homemade bread, after three days, it is inedible, which makes you really wonder what they put in bread bread because it can last a long time. But what's even worse, if you've ever made tortillas, that's our thing. We love making homemade tortillas. It takes lard. Yes, you can buy lard, animal fat. And at first, you're like, I don't, want to, I don't know if I want that. After you say it a while, it just kind of rolls off your tongue. Lard. But you make homemade tortillas. They are nothing like mission tortillas, and they are bad like the next day. I've got mission tortillas in, in our pantry. They've been there for months. They're the same. really worries me. This is a homemade meal. The invitation doesn't last forever. You have to show up when you're called. It's also an invitation from the king. You don't get to tell the king, no, 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 this is my schedule. You'll act on my schedule. You have to respond to the king as he is the king. But sometimes, man, the call of God comes upon us and the gracious, merciful call of God comes to us again and again. And we're not violent. We just say, I'm not ready. Not now, later. But there, there's a danger in that. First off, the doors won't always be open when God calls. And this is for Christians and non-Christians as God is leading us. Like doors close. But there, there's another danger. If the faith that's acting upon your heart now isn't enough to make you decide, what makes you think that faith will be stronger later? If the call upon your life right now isn't enough to push you over to yes, what makes you think you'll even want to repent later? And so there's an urgency in the call. And there's also a rejection that can come with the call. And so look what happens with rejection. Verse 7 says, Now the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, every commentary looks at this and they say, man, this is definitely pointing to 70 AD when Rome had just had enough with the Jewish people. So they sack uh, the temple and they burn it to the ground. Jesus in two chapters is going to predict it again. Some people look at this and they say, this couldn't possibly be written by Matthew, the former tax collector, even though he loves to put in tax collectors and prostitutes get in the kingdom first because it has to be a late written thing after this because they just can't see that Jesus could have predicted the future but like i just don't understand that we're about to read that jesus has been predicting his death and resurrection over and over and over and we're about to see jesus die and resurrect again and then send the holy spirit to indwell in the lives of people crossing them over from you know from death to life we're about to see some really miraculous things we just read out of acts some really crazy things are happening and you get hung up like i don't know if jesus could predict the future or not but this also hangs us up because we're like, dang, king, like 
They don't show up to your wedding and you just go destroy a whole city? Like, how do you have time for that? Like, the meal is ready, right? There's an offense when the merciful call of God comes and we're like, I'm just not ready. And so the first thing is, this call came, those who accepted the invitation but refused to come when the call came. But then a little bit shorter section. There are those who were unexpectedly called and they came in. Look at verse 9. It says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they could find or all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. You know, Luke has this account, and it's a little bit different, where it talks a lot about the excuses and doesn't have the king going and destroying the city of murderers. Uh, but it talks about the rejection, and it really kind of centers in, like, the, you know, the Jewish people rejecting Jesus, some of them, and then opening up to the Gentiles. But this kind of is a little bit more broad, where it kind of talks about those who were just kind of worthy, who were ready, rejected Jesus. And then those who weren't ready, who weren't really worthy or up to the task, they got the invitation and they stepped in. And so both are held within the New Testament. I want to point out just a couple things. And so first where it says main roads. Like it is going above and beyond to say the intersections and thoroughfares, the main places that everyone has to go through to get somewhere to the town. It's where people had to go by. And so the call went to where the people were, those who were in the public squares, those traveling the main thoroughfares of life, those who are road battered, who weren't prepared for a high class wedding, those who were less ready, less prepared, less accustomed, maybe had less means to attend but those who were willing to show up. And then the other thing I want to show, it says the bad and the good. Like this is definitely saying the breadth of this call, that this call is going out to everyone, not just people who get their lives kind of somewhat together, then they can come in. Like this is going out to everyone, whatever their life looks like, however rude and insolent to the father that they have been, you can answer the call. It goes out. You can come in. I think it also speaks to the messiness of just church life. Like those who come in, maybe grew up around the church and they kind of know what's going on. And there's those who, you know, don't even know anything about church. Like when they read the Bible, they're like, I do not understand how it's Job. It is clearly Job, J-O-B. They don't know anything. Sometimes church life gets messy coming from different places to come around the person to Jesus. And the person to Jesus will draw us in more and more into the grace of God, which will make us more and more gracious with people, which will make us more and more open-handed about our preferences, but closed-handed about who Jesus is and what he offers. And so it speaks to a messiness. But this call is broad, this call is messy. This call reflects so many of the things that Jesus has talked about, like what he talks about in Matthew 13, about the wheat and the weeds and the fishnet, and what he talks about in Matthew 25, about the sheep and the goats. It's a call in. So this call is broad. This call is messy. This call is for the messy. This call is for the put together. This call is for those who stayed home. This call is for those who got lost in the thoroughfares of life. This call must be answered. And so the call goes out. So the first thing we saw, the call. You have to answer the call. What is that call like? It's all of a sudden, man, the claims of Christ seem a little bit louder in your life. They start to pull on a direction. You start to look at the things in your hand, even the good things in your hand, and you start to see they don't satisfy the way they promise. And it's a choice. Will I open-handedly lay those things down and change my mind and turn to the king who's calling? The call. Second, clothes. And so our merciful God clothes us for the wedding. And so look at verse 11. So everyone's in. The wedding is hot. Everyone's ready. Elbows at 90 degrees, moving left to right. Lawnmower hasn't been broken out yet. So the king comes in to look at the guest. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? 
and he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which makes us want to really know what the wedding garment is. What is a wedding garment? Why is this dress code so important? Why are we throwing people and binding them out the door when there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Like, what is the dress code? How do I meet it? Can I meet it? Is it word for word? I was, I was in a fraternity in, in college, and we had a dress code for chapter meeting. And it specifically said for chapter that you had to wear dress shoes and a tie. But it only said you had to wear dress shoes and a tie. And so every year, an upperclassman would abide by the dress code word for word with just dress shoes and a tie. And would come to meeting, and they always had a lot of questions about certain things going on. And when they would stand up to ask questions, there would always be a Lysol spray on the chair behind him. And so they were abiding by the dress code so they wouldn't be kicked out. What is the dress code of a wedding garment? And so historically, the wedding garment, it's not something really fancy. It's just a white tunic that's really, really clean. It's set aside for special occasions. It's kind of your Sunday's best. Now, we're pretty casual here. And so your Sunday's best is your Monday's worst. I mean, it's okay. But it, it, it's something that is set aside to be acceptable. It's not like a fancy tuxedo or anything like that, but it is white and it is separate and it is special. And so the picture is this guy came in and he didn't have that or didn't put it on and he's confronted with it and he's speechless. Now, now there's a lot of people get puzzled about this, theologians included, and they say, what does it mean? It sounds like it might be saying that you have to have a bunch of works, i.e. a cleaned up moral life to stay. And so it sounds like it might set a trajectory like, hey, I got in, I accepted the call, but my life isn't good enough, so I get kicked out. Now, I don't think that's what it's saying at all, because I think there's two elements that have to be looked at, and I like it because it's also what Augustine said. And so he said, first, the king is merciful, and he knows he invited people off the thoroughfares of life. He knows they didn't have time to go home. He knows they might not have means. And second, the man was speechless. And so Augustine, <clears throat> I'm okay, I'm okay. I got excited. Augustine writes in his commentary about this, he says, the king would have provided the wedding garment for anyone who was invited off the street. Because certainly if he would have said, man, I was just doing my job selling fish and I got invited, I didn't have time to go home, or I don't have a job and I was just on the road and I was invited and I was ushered in. They said it was free food. I don't have enough money to have a wedding garment. He doesn't have an excuse. He's speechless. And so Augustine hypothesized that the merciful king prepared the wedding, invited the guest, and provided the wedding garment and this man was speechless because he audaciously refused to put on the provided wedding garment. He said, I'll be just fine. So a lot of theologians would be like, man, what is the get wedding garment? Could it be faith? Yeah, yeah, you must put on faith. But the New Testament says that even faith is a merciful gift. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says that it is by faith you have been saved. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say that this faith that saves you is the gift of God so no one can boast. So God gives faith and we have to put it on. We have to answer the call. Or it could be good works. Sure, it could be good works. Sure, but, but look what Ephesians 2.10 says. It goes on to say that God prepares good works in advance for us to walk in them. We have to answer the call. We have to put them on. And then a lot of theologians say, this is probably Christ. We have to put on Christ. Absolutely yes. It's always been you have to put on Christ. Your moral good works are not enough. Your put-together family is not enough. Your prayer devotion is not enough. You've always had to put on Christ. Isaiah saw it, Isaiah 61.10. He says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God has to put a righteousness on you. 
Or we see it again in like a Romans 13 where we say answering the call. So Romans 13 verse 14, it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and gratify its desires. And so answering the call is putting on the righteousness of Christ and it changes us. Or we see it at the end in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne room, before the Lamb, and look at it, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then jump down just a few verses to verse 13. It says, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Even when we were insolent and we said, let Jesus' blood be on us and upon our children, we were speaking prophetically. The only thing that would change us is the blood of Christ. Every nation, every tongue, every people have to answer this call. So we see first the call and then we see this clothes. We have to put Jesus on his righteousness. But if we give him our unrighteousness, he will turn and give us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's called the great exchange. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God. So we have to be clothed. But then there's a warning. The merciful God, the merciful king, will close the door to the wedding. So verse 13, the merciful king cast the guy outside and he was outside and the door was closed. Those who were invited but did not come in were outside the closed door. The door was closed and the banquet persisted. God will close the door. You have to answer the call when you get it. And then we get to this verse. And this is where, man, we love, we can argue. But we're not going to argue because I have the microphone. Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. That word chosen is going to show up in chapter 24 three different times when it talks about the elect, meaning that nothing can pull some people, you know, who are following after Christ. If you love Jesus, nothing can pull you out of his hand. Nothing can pull you away. No suffering, no Satan, no end. Nothing can take you out of the hand of Christ. It is set. It is done. It is a deal if you've responded to the call. And so let me just simplify this just a little bit. So first off, you can be called and can say no with indifference and preoccupation and the door will be closed on you. You can look, man, maybe later, man, I got to be about my business and my family and my things and my wants. And you can hang on to my and say no to the call. Or you can be called and you can say no violently. You can say, man, how narrow-minded is that? Do they really know that there's a whole world out there? Don't they know? Blah, 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 You can violently oppose the call. Or you can respond to the call and wantonly show up, but refuse to walk in the righteousness that's been put before you and refuse and refuse and refuse. And really, you didn't answer the call because you never put on Christ. Or... You can feel the call in your soul. You can feel it pulling upon you and you can be really afraid. And man, what does that mean about my family? And what does it mean about my life? What will I do with it? What will it mean about my future? Man, how will people respond to me? Will these friends still be my friends? Will my family even still love me? And you hear my, 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 my. But you can lay the my down and trust this king who has scars on his hands because he opened up his arms and took the nails for you. You can trust that king and you can answer the call 
and nothing can ever pull you out of that wedding because you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. But notice there's no one here who didn't at some point respond to a call. And this is where the, the, the wedding is a little bit different than everything else. The call has gone out. What do you say? So there's a lot that say no. There's some that say yes. And I just want to let you know, everybody who wants Jesus gets Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we, uh, gosh, we love you and we need you. And man, we just want to be reminded that you're not calling us to something terrible. You're not calling us like we have parables that were called to work in the field or work in the vineyards. And so, yes, there are things in this life that are hard. We have stories that you say, man, sometimes the tune that you play for us is a funeral song and we have to sing along and we don't want to sing that song. But Lord, this picture is you call us to a wedding. You call us to a joyous occasion where there is feasting and there's drinking and there is laughing and we don't even have to bring our own robe that we get to put on the robe that you provide and we fit in. It is the family of God and we get to know people that we don't know, but we have more in common with them because you met us in our despair just like you met them in their despair and they answered the call like we answered the call. But now we have to ask, will we answer the call? And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit be thick, Lord, and that call might take us to the back of the room to be prayed with, that something is just heavy on us. It's hard to lay down because it feels like mine. It feels like if I don't have it, and that might be the call on a believer. And we have all these calls throughout life that you lead us because you're the king and you're the shepherd and you draw and you direct and you're good. But for some of us, we might be answering the call for the first time and we're just saying this, I hope what he says is true. Dig into the scriptures, lean on Jesus. And if you trust and treasure Jesus, we invite you to communion where we come and it's the way that we answer the call. Like we hear, we see that it was the broken body of Jesus and it was the blood of Jesus that paid the debt of my sin. Thanks be to Jesus. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.